Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the executive director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. Over the years, I don't know how many of you have sent me a link to this uh, BYU devotional titled The Very Root of Christian Doctrine, and it's by Thomas B. Griffith. And so many have encouraged me to reach out to him and get him on the Leading Saints podcast. He's been on my my list for a while, and finally, I made it happen. I'm so excited to uh, share this interview with you because there's just so many impactful principles that uh, Thomas Griffith shares in this interview. Now, those of you who are not familiar with Thomas Griffith, he's actually been on incredible stages and had incredible influence in our country, in our church, and uh, in so many ways. He's been on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Washington, D.C. Circuit often referred to the, as the second most important court in the nation after, the obviously, the Supreme Court. He stepped down from the D.C. Circuit in 2020. He's been a lecturer on law at Harvard, the Wheatley Institute at BYU, and a special counsel in the Washington, D.C. office of the international law firm of Hunton, Andrews, and Kurth. But for the sake of this interview, we focus on his time as a BYU campus stake president, and the way he, he led and approached things there is remarkable, definitely worth the listen. He actually references this in this talk I referenced earlier, The Very Root of Christian Doctrine, which we'll link to, but talking about how he gathered his stake and it got them focused on Jesus Christ, especially in sacrament meeting, and why this is so crucial for us as we offer redemption to those that attend church. And just his tips and encouragement of making sacrament meeting a great meeting is awesome. And in fact, I'm going to add this to our library of the, the Meetings with Saints virtual library that we have because this fits so perfectly in our effort of presiding over meetings as leaders and making sure that they're worth attending and bless the lives of those in attendance and offer them redemption when they attend church. So again, a few things to listen for. Obviously, his great conversion story at the beginning. Then we get into his time of establishing vision and a focus as a stake presidency, how they did that with the, the acronym of APRIL. A meaning the atonement of Jesus Christ, so that keeping their meetings, especially their sacrament meetings, focus on the atonement of Jesus Christ. And then we just talk about presiding as a judge and what leaders can learn about 
that experience in our experience of leading and presiding as judges in Israel sometimes, or just as leaders. So awesome interview. You're going to love it. Let's get into it. Here's my interview with Thomas B. Griffith. Finally, I've uh, taken the steps to invite into the Leading Saints podcast, Thomas Griffith. How are you? I'm fine, Kurt. Nice. Now, there are certain people listening that maybe are super familiar with your name if they listen to the right news or in the certain political circles or Washington, D.C. circles and others that maybe have no idea who you are. So how do you put yourself into context? How do I put myself into context? Well, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. I'm a native Washingtonian. My family goes back in this area literally to the 17th century, 1650, where the descendants of a man named Ninian Bell, who worked out his indenture in this area, stayed. My line is all common folks, good common people, farmers, artisans, laborers, uh, nobody fancy. But I'm deeply rooted in the D.C. area. So I'm a creature of the swamp, you know, however you want to phrase it. This is this is my <laughs> home and I, and I, I love it and I, I embrace it. I'm as establishment as you can find, for better or for worse. So yeah, so so I I start with I'm a native Washingtonian, but I'm a convert to the church. I joined the church as a junior in high school in uh, McLean, Virginia, which is a a nearby suburb of Washington D.C. Curiously, my wife joined the church as a senior in high school in the same ward, different year. But we're both we joined the church independently of one another. We've uh, we've raised our family largely in, in in the D.C. area, not exclusively. We spent some time out in out in Provo when I was the general counsel of BYU. But in my professional life, they call me Judge Judge Griffith. In 2005, President George W. Bush nominated me for a vacancy on on a court here in D.C. That's called it's got a long name, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And the Senate confirmed me and the president appointed me. And I served on that court for 15 years until 2020 when I stepped down from the court. I'm now associated with a law firm here in in Washington, D.C. That's where I'm speaking from right now. But I also have associations with, I'm I'm a a fellow at the Wheatley Institute at BYU. And I I teach uh, courses at Harvard Law School and at Stanford Law School. So those are the, those are the activities that, the professional activities that uh, keep me busy. Wow, that sounds but, like but, a busy but, life. But, you know, when it's between you and me and we're talking church stuff, it's not Judge Griffith. It's uh, <laughs> it's Brother Griffith. It's it's Tom. Hey, I love that. Yeah, that's the beauty of our community of saints, right? We're all just brothers and sisters. So tell me about your conversion. Was that, is there, I'm sure there's a story behind that, but were you in a place of, of seeking as a as a teenager for, for more truth or how did that come to be? So I, I, I'm not certain that I would give myself the credit of calling myself a seeker. <laughs> I was I was 16 years old. This is back in the uh, early 1970s or so, and I was raised as as an Episcopalian and was actually an an acolyte or an altar boy, we would say, in the local Episcopal church. And now, having said that, I'll be delicate here. No one would have mistaken me for devout or pious <laughs> at that time. So, can we just leave it there? We'll yeah, sure, that's there. fine. We get it. Yeah. Uh, but I was familiar with religious life and uh, admired it and. Thank my parents for raising me to be part of a of a church community, and my closest friends to this day. With Terrell Gibbons calls me an Anglican who believes in the Book of Mormon, and <laughs> okay. uh, that, that's funny. It's not actually accurate. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm a Latter Day right. Saint who believes in the Book of Mormon, but I do have Anglican roots, and and they mean a great deal to me. And 
um, those are formative in many ways. So with, with all that said, I met some Latter-day Saints in high school. I dated a young woman who was a Latter-day Saint, and she introduced me to her friends. And I was just, I was really blown away by the fact that there were these normal kids. They looked like me, they dressed like me, all the boys needed haircuts, you know, and and they were having fun without any of the activities that my circle of friends was were engaged in, and that really shook me. I thought there's a there are people out there living differently that are really flourishing. That really that really shook me. She invited me to a series of first a party with local friends from the local ward, then what I now know of as a bishop's youth fireside, where I saw this same group of kids now not in a party setting, now in a setting where they're actually listening to an old guy talk about scriptures. And here, and they were listening respectfully. And I thought, what? <laughs> What's going on here? High school kids listening respectfully to somebody with gray hair? I couldn't believe that. But then the real key moment came when I was invited to attend early morning seminary class the next day. And maybe this is too much detail, but it was in October of my junior year of high school. And I arrived at the early morning seminary class and saw the same group of kids now. But now it's at 6.30 in the morning at church. And, and they had a lesson that day. Uh, they were studying the Book of Mormon that year. They had a lesson that day. This is the beginning of October now, on the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Only years later did I figure out that it was all a setup for me. You know, no, we were studying the Book of Mormon. That lesson was supposed to have been taught you know, at Labor Day, right? The coming forth uh -huh. of the Book of Mormon. But here it was October. It was clearly a setup for me. And once again, I saw this group of, of young people in this setting where they expressed joy and faith and love of family. And again, it was just a, a world that I had not experienced. I, the seminary teacher that uh, morning, a man I love dearly and, and still in contact with, his name is Ivan Keller, lives in, lives in Orem, Utah, he and his wife, Judy. They were, they were the cool young couple teaching the, the high school uh, juniors and seniors uh, seminary. The other cool young couple that was teaching the freshmen and sophomores were Rick and Linda Iyer, you know, how about oh, that? Wow. So this is back when they were first married. So it was an interesting, interesting group of, of folks in, in McLean. Anyway, at the end of the class, Brother Keller hands me a copy of the Book of Mormon and shows me what I now know of as Moroni's promise. And I took the Book of Mormon to school that day. And instead of sitting in the front of the class and, and being the arrogant jerk that I was typically, this day I sat in the back of the class and I opened my textbook and slid the Book of Mormon inside. And this is one of those old versions, versions of the Book of Mormon that had a statue of the angel Moroni on the front, like standing uh -huh. in front of a screen. And I began to leaf through it. And in those days, the Freeburg paintings were interspersed throughout the, uh, throughout the text. And I, and I have a recommendation. Let's go back to that. Let's not put them all at the front. I went through and I was looking, you know, I was looking at the pictures, right? And, and these were strange scenes of, I had no idea what it was talking about, but I remember getting to the, the picture that I now know is the, the Lord touching the stones uh, for the brother of Jared. And you think about that painting, it's really strange, it's strange headgear, strange lighting. And I can remember puzzling over that picture, wondering what it was. And then I started to read on the page on the, the other side from that picture. And I don't remember the verses that I read, don't remember the substance of them, but I do remember I had an experience that I'd never had before and have rarely, actually have never had quite like this sense where I had this, this overwhelming sense of joy. I had this sense that what I was reading was ancient, 
that it was true, that it that it confirmed the the trustworthiness of the of the biblical account, that the Bible was was something valuable and important to to read. And then I had this sense that the rest of my life was going to be tied up with this book. Now I can give expression to this experience now in words that are comfortable with me. At the time, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it right. this way. Yeah. It, it, it was just this overwhelming sense. And so I came out of that class and I looked for the young lady I was dating. And all I could say to her was, I want to learn more about your church. You know? oh, wow. And uh, so anyway, maybe a long, too long a story there. That's how. Yeah, that's um, great. I, you know, I'm actually, I'm reluctant to to tell that story for a number of reasons, it was pretty sacred to me. But yeah, sure. Like, like in my teaching of of youth, I almost never tell the story because it's so unusual. It's not going to. It's unlikely to happen. To yeah, you don't particularly for members of the church. For members of the church, it's going to be drip, 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 drip. Right. But for me, it wasn't. I think it took, and you know, thing with the eye of faith. You know, it took the Lord taking a plank and hitting me upside the head to. <laughs> to, to jar me. But anyway, that, that's, that's how yeah, I that's became great. interested in the restoration. That's how, you know, obviously I took the missionary lessons after that and was fully enthusiastic about taking the next step and, yeah. and becoming yeah. a member of the, becoming a member of the church. So. And then with your career path, did you always feel like you were going to become a lawyer or go into law? No, no, no. In fact, my first career was actually in the church educational system. So hmm. I was in the church educational system full-time in the Baltimore, Maryland area, running seminaries and institutes in that area and stakes around it. Did that for three years and, and just loved it. I just, I just had a, gosh, I worked with some great people. Phil yeah. Barlow was on the faculty, of the Eastern States area. He was up in Cambridge. That's when I first got to meet and began my lifelong admiration of him. What a great human being. But, uh, but there, were, there were other folks like that. These are the people I was working with. And I just um, yeah, what a blessing. Loved it. It was a great, it was a great, great time. But I did have a sense that maybe this isn't something that I wanted to do the rest of, of my life in a professional capacity. So I'm from the DC area. I'm a political junkie. I listen to C-SPAN radio. <laughs> uh -huh. Normal people don't know there's a C-SPAN radio, but us junkies do. And I listen to that. So that was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something in the nation's public life. And I thought the best career path to do that would be to go to law school. So I made the tough decision, actually, to leave the church educational system and to to go to law school to pursue a public service path that yeah. way. So yeah, wow, that's fascinating. I'll probably uh, jump around on your your uh, your personal timeline a little bit, but the the I, I don't I don't, can't remember how many people or who it was, but. A handful of people sent me independently a link to your talk. And this was several years ago, and I'm finally getting around to interviewing you. But you gave a talk at BYU back in 2006 called The Very Root of Christian Doctrine. And in that, and we'll link to it, and I think everybody should, especially leaders, should listen to that and benefit from what you shared. But you talk about your time as a stake president. You were a stake president, I believe, in Provo over a YSA stake. Is that right? Yeah, back then, it was called the BYU Ninth Stake. This is back before they shifted to... Oh, okay. State. But it, it, was a, it was what we used to call a campus state, almost not entirely of BYU students, but mostly of BYU students. Yeah. So maybe unpack those concepts because you had this, I don't know if I could say it's unique, but this intentional approach to your time as state president as far as how you kept people focused on the Savior. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I got to say it was, you know, it was such an honor to be asked to speak at a BYU devotional. I mean, I uh, when I was a BYU student, I probably 
one of the best decisions I made was to commit myself to go to every devotional and every forum. And so those, that podium, that venue it was re- really important to me in many ways. And this is before Jim or Fredette was playing basketball there, right? I mean, then it became important in other ways. But to be there at the Marriott, to be invited to speak at the Marriott Center and at that podium was really, uh, in many ways, overwhelming experience. But yeah, I decided to talk about this remarkable experience that we had in what was called the BYU Ninth Stake. Elder John Groper was the General Authority 70 who called me to be a stake president. And in the training that, that he very, you know, the 10 minutes of training that they, that they give you, he said to our newly called stake presidency, brethren, I want you to think outside the box. You know, he said most of his church experience had been in the Pacific Islands, and he had learned that there's real value in thinking outside the box. My wife, hearing that, jokingly said as he left, I just learned that Elder Groberg is not inspired. She said, the last thing you three guys need to be told is think outside the box. <laughs> she said, he should have said, you pick that handbook up and you follow it slavishly. She, she was joking. Yeah. But, but we took that as an invitation to think outside the box. And I had been a bishop of a family ward in Northern Virginia that years before and had discovered we had a, a brilliant early morning seminary teacher named Melanie Tagg who, as I saw what she did with the youth in our ward in her teaching, it was always focused on Christ. I mean, it, she was teaching Hebrew Bible, Old Testament one year, and we, we had a sacrament meeting where we featured these young seminary students They talking about what they had learned, what they were learning in seminary that year. And here, they're, here are these 15 and 16-year-old kids talking about symbols of Christ that they're discovering as they're studying the Hebrew Bible. It was incredible. I thought she's on to something here. So we decided as a bishopric that we were going to make certain that everyone focused their sacrament meeting talks on Christ in one way or another. You know, we said, you got to quote him. You got to tell a story from his life. You know, he's you got, somebody coming into our chapel hearing one of our sacrament meetings is, cannot leave thinking that we're not Christians, right? No, if we, this is what we're going to do. We've just taken the sacrament together. It's got to be about the Savior. So we did that as a family ward, and it, it was really quite remarkable. So I thought, I want to do something like that, build on that experience as we've got these, you know, two to 3,000 BYU students with us, and they're going to be going out and doing great things around the church, around the world. The tweak that we put on it was that it wasn't just to be about Christ in general, which that's fine. That's fine. But we want, we, we encouraged them when we did more than encourage them. We ordered them that every talk and every lesson in our stay was going, needed to have a direct and express link to the atonement of Christ. And the inspiration for this came from Elder Packer's classic talk, The Mediator, where I think I'm quoting, but I may get it a little bit wrong here. You've probably got it in front of you. Talking about the atonement of Christ, he said, the atonement of Christ is the very root of Christian doctrine. You may know much about the gospel as it branches out from there, but if you only know the branches, and they're not connected to that root. If they've been cut free from that truth, here's the money line, there will be no life, nor substance, nor redemption in them. Okay, that's harsh language. According to that template, if we're teaching in church and it's not connected to the atonement of Christ, our teaching will have no life, no substance, no redemption. It may have lots of other things. It may have guilt. It may have fear. 
you know, it may be funny, but it doesn't have life, substance, or redemption. Now, by that template, I had to admit that many of the lessons that I had taught, many of the talks I had given may have been good in one way or another, but not good in the way they need to be. Life, substance, redemption. So we took that concept and with Elder Groberg's approval, we ran with it. And, you know, we, as my wife said, honey, you were the type of state president you would have hated to have when you were a bishop because (laughs) no, we micromanaged on this one. And we told the bishops, every sacrament meeting talk, you need to teach your people how to take the topic they've been assigned and link it to the atonement of Christ. Now, there's, sometimes there's some confusion about this. Not necessarily link it to the passion of Christ, not necessarily link it to the last week of his life and his suffering, although that's fine. I'm all for that. The more, the better that. No, when we're talking about the atonement of Christ, we're talking about his capacity, his desire to unite us with God and to unite us with those around us. He's, the concept here is that what Christ does is at one bringing us in connection to our heavenly parents, bringing us in connection to those around us. So anyway, so that was the idea. And we, we emphasized it by telling the bishops, if you decide that you want to have a sacrament meeting on provident living, good for you. That's great. Yeah. No, that's great. That's an important topic. But just understand that in our state, the talks are going to be about provident living and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And if you can't figure out how to make the link between those two topics? Well, you don't talk about it in church. There are other good places to talk about it. But here in sacrament meeting, here in church, we talk about the atonement of Christ yeah. and, and how a principle works into the atonement of Christ. And we shouldn't talk about that, but the, the idea was that if we do that, that there's no bottom to that well, right? You just can't ever get to the bottom of that. It'll be the lessons and talks will be powerful. And it, was, it wasn't just for sacrament; It was primary sacrament, but we also said to all of the teachers in the auxiliaries and in, in priesthood corps, no, this is you too, okay? So we would hold workshops periodically where we'd get all the teachers together. We'd look at the approved curriculum, the lessons that are coming up, and we'd have workshops to say, okay, how do we find the atonement of Christ in this principle? How do we teach it? Because it, it isn't always apparent, right? It's not yeah. always obvious. But if you think, if you start to think about it a little bit, you can find it. And then once you find it and make it part of your lesson, I got to tell you, Kurt, it's a different experience. I bet. Yeah. Those three hours go by quickly. I would not have voted to sustain moving to two hours. I I realize I'm completely bonkers. I I think I'm with you there. So I'm a four hour church guy, you know, because because (laughs) when you are gathered together with saints and you've partaken of the sacrament, of the Lord's Supper. And then everything you do after that links to that experience that you've just had with one another, a partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And your lessons are linked to that experience, linked to the atonement of Christ. No, those three hours fly by. Yeah. And I know two hours fly by. But anyway, you know, it was it was a pretty remarkable experience. After one year of doing this, had a meeting of all the bishops, and I said, okay, look, we've been doing this for a year. What do you think? Good idea, bad idea. I think we had 12 bishops then, and the first bishop raised his hand, and he said, uh, President, it's a great idea, but I got to tell you, I think we've overdone it. I think we've actually cheapened power of the atonement by talking about it so much. And Kurt, when he said that, my heart sank. I thought, oh, he's right. This is awful. You know, we had the best of intentions, and it's backfired as 
as things often do. You have good intentions, it doesn't work out. And my heart just sank. I thought, he's right. But then, then a bishop raised his hand and said, no, no, don't change a thing. Don't change a thing. I'm 55 years old. I've never been as excited about coming to church as I am right now. And then every one of the other bishops said the same thing. And then we realized, okay, we've stumbled onto something here. We're not going to change. So we didn't change. So for the, you know, the four and a half, five years we had as a stake presidency, we didn't have to come up with a new program each year. It was this. Yeah. It was just driving this home. And it, we, didn't me- you know, we didn't have reports or forms to, to, to measure this, but it just seemed right. And it seemed good. And it's not an exaggeration to say, I still hear periodically from people who were there then. And they all remember it. And, and so the question I, you know, I'll run into them in an airport or I'll be speaking at a fireside in Texas uh-huh. and somebody will come up and you say, Hey, President Griffith, I was there. It was great. And then my response to them is, are you still doing it? Yeah. Uh, and they say, yeah, they, what, I'm sorry. I'll take what, one little anecdote. I was in a, a couple of years ago, I was in a BYU homecoming parade back when they still had those. And my <laughs> wife and I are sitting in one of those old fashioned cars, you know, they, they drive around the perimeter of the campus and. We're, go, we're, we're going up, uh, I think it's University Parkway, the MTC's on the left and drive up there and you're looking at it's a crowd, it's a fun day, pretty weather and waving to people. And there was, a, uh, there was a young mother who ran up to our car with a kid on her hip. She said, President Griffith, I was there. I was in the BYU Night Stake. We're still doing it. We're doing it in our family now. We've got four kids. And I tell you, Kurt, like that, I lost it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, here I'm in the public. I lost it. I realized wow, we did it. We did it. We were able for one brief shining moment to get a group of young people together and to teach them and to teach us this whole thing. It's all about connecting to Christ and allowing him to work his magic. That's not the right word. To work his transformative power in your life so that you can help reach others so that he can work his transformative power in their life. So, yeah. yeah wow. It, it was pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. It worked. And here's, here's the thing for leaders out there. It works. No, no, no. It really, it, just pure pragmatism. This works. Yeah. Now, it's hard work to do. I have been in stakes that claim that they have done this, but they don't. No, it's hard work. It's a, a bishop's got to be a tyrant. I'm kidding. But <laughs> we would, the bishops would work with their members to teach them how to do this. It wasn't just yeah. say, okay, your talk this week is on tithing. Oh, and tithe the atonement to it. No, no. The bishop actually had to sit down and help them do that. I said, in the lessons, we'd have constant work. We'd workshop this constantly to make certain teachers understood how to do it. There was a lot of heavy lifting to do this, but yeah, I got to say it, it worked in remarkable ways. So, oh man, that's so encouraging. And you know, the, the typical thing you hear is like, you know, and it's all throughout the handbook, right? That at church, leaders need to make sure that the doctrine is taught. And we sometimes, you know, this can be such a general term and people define it different ways. And so you might think, well, yeah, in sacrament, we talked about tithing and yeah, tithing's doctrine. Or we talked about even temples, you know, yeah, temples, that's doctrine and or uh, family history or whatever it is. Like they're sort of in this general broad circle of doctrine, but it's really the doctrine of Christ and, and forcing people to say like, okay, you talk about tithing, but connect it to the atonement Jesus Christ. That exercise alone will not only bless the speaker in their preparation, but bless the ward as they're taking on that journey as well during that presentation. And it prevents so many pathologies mm. that can develop by focusing on 
specific commandments alone. And so now here's some bad news for the bishops out there. Okay, here's bad news for the bishops out there. <laughs> so I think the most important thing a bishop can do, and you know, the, the typical answer that you get is work with the youth, and that's important. That's uh, that's really important. I would differ. I'd say you got to work with the youth, but I, here's what I think the most important thing a bishop can do: put on a great sacrament meeting. No, I mean a great sacrament. It doesn't do, in my mind, doesn't do a whole lot of good to work at getting people to come to sacrament meeting if sacrament meeting stinks. <laughs> Maybe that's not the right word. You, if no, it's no should. good. Yeah. If it's yeah, no good. Yeah. And, and so, no, here's the bad news here. That's not easy to do. Revealing <laughs> maybe why my wife said I was the type of stake president, you know, no bishop. I wouldn't have liked to, to serve under as a bishop. When I was a bishop, I never delegated sacrament meeting to one of my counselors, putting it together. I didn't do that. I loved them, great men, but I thought, no, this is my most important job. I got to put on a great sacrament meeting. Yeah. And so how do you do that? So that, and it takes a lot of work to do that. And so, you know, I would call the speakers in advance and we would have a discussion. And back in those days, we didn't, I, when I was a bishop, we didn't actually have a theme of a sacrament meeting. We had a scripture block and we'd say, okay, I'd like you to talk about Alma 34, you know, verses 20 to 28. I'd like you to talk, yeah, like, like you to read that closely and then share with the ward what lessons you learned from that. And then, then we would talk about it in advance. I'd say, here's just some ideas. You go with your, but here's what I'm thinking. Here's some ideas. Well, that takes time, right? Yeah. And yeah. It takes time to say, now, you know, how does the atonement link with this? You know, that's something to think about. That takes a lot of time, but it makes a huge difference. And then, and then you think about the music, like, what can we do to have great music? And we don't, we'd have the primary sing, primary kids sing as often as possible because parents come to watch their primary kids sing, right? Yeah. And that, that wonderful dad who hadn't been to church in a number of years, returned missionary dad who hadn't been to church in a number of years, he'll come when his son or daughter is singing primary. So we'd, we'd, we'd use that a lot. To, you know, get, but the point is you got to think the whole thing through. Yeah. But put on a great sacrament meeting. And a lot of the, a lot of the other things will take care, take care yeah. of themselves. But anyway. Yeah. My mind goes to, you know, we often throw around the world preside. And, you know, you've not only presided as a church leader, but as a, as a judge and whatnot, but that what that means is really what you've articulated that you don't just sit in the room and your authority and keys are recognized, but you've taken ownership of that meeting to the point that you're determined to put on a great sacrament meeting and, and do the steps and the work outside of that, that hour timeframe to really make it a great meeting for others to attend. I think you're exactly right, but I'm warning everyone as you might, it's hard. And so as a state president, I, I taught that as well. You know, I'd say half my bishops looked at me and thought, you're crazy. <laughs> We're not going to, you know, no, I'm going to delegate it to my counselor. And, and there's value in that. And, yeah, yeah. you know, if your counselor knows how to do it, that would be great. But there's obviously a, you're pushing back against our church culture where, you know, mm -hmm. no, you you delegate your counselors. Everybody maybe takes a month, start. right? And Yeah, yeah. You take a month and that sort of thing. And maybe that'll work. Maybe that works. But, but maybe if I was a better bishop, I wouldn't have. But, <laughs> no, but it, 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 it came out of a sense of, no, this is, I can't delegate away my primary job. Put on a yeah. great sacrament meeting. Anyway, that's I probably what should have more, but you get the point. You get the yeah. point. So great sacrament meetings. Yeah, I want to go back to this concept of the focus on on Christ and the atonement. You know, I have I've talked to a, a recent uh, a stake president recently who said every 
every year as May approaches, you know, Mother's Day approaches, he always sends out a, a message to his bishop reminding him, hey, listen, bishops, like even though Mother's Day is coming, we still worship Jesus Christ on, on Mother's Day. Not We don't take a Sunday off and worship mothers. So let's, right, 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 regardless right. of what message or you speak, make sure we're still focused on Jesus. I think that's like a good sound reminder because we sort of fall into those cultural rivets, right? And so, that's and, great, I, and that's I love- That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. And I love this concept of, you know, just using this as a anecdote of what it looks like to establish vision and purpose as a leader in an organization. And you did that as a state presidency. And so I'm just curious, like, was there, did it come up organically, this idea and approach organically, like in a, in a presidency meeting? Was this something that sort of had been, you know, festering in your heart before you were called? Or how did that, what do you yeah. remember that process of this actually becoming the standard? Well, it, it was the latter. I mean, it was based on the experience I had had as a bishop of a family ward in Northern Virginia, where we where we focused on Jesus uh, mm-hmm. in our sacrament meetings. That's where I thought, this really works. And then we were, you know, again, we, so I brought it, you know, we're newly called stake presidency. And one of the first meetings I said, here's my idea. What do you think of this? And the counselors liked it. We added something else to it that one of the counselors came up with that, that I thought was, was brilliant. And that is that we wanted our, the members of our stake to be deeply involved in like Mother Teresa-like service, you know, like Mother Teresa's missionaries, the church, caring for the poorest of the poor. Because we had, we had BYU students. They were young and vigorous and idealistic, and, and they had time, more time than you would have in a, in a family stake. Yeah. And so, uh, and so we added that component to what we were doing. And then we came up with an acronym for this. And the acronym was APRIL. The A standard for atonement. The PR standard for pure religion. That's the, obviously from the book of James, what pure religion is, is caring for the, you know, the widows and the orphans and sick. The IL came for integrity and love. We, we never got around to that one. <laughs> I feel bad about that. We were going to emphasize the Sermon on the Mount, but most of our efforts were spent on the APR thing. But we, but we came up with the acronym. This yeah. wasn't my idea. And when my counselor came up with it, why don't we use an acronym? April, you know, church was organized in April, catchy. At the time, I thought, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. That just sounds so corny. But I thought, listen, they're going along with me on this stuff. Maybe I better give them something. <laughs> Turns out that was the most brilliant idea of all. So we went by the, the acronym APRIL, and that sort of summarized what we were trying to do. We had posters made with the acronym APRIL. We had bookmarkers that we passed out. It was April this, April this, April this. And now when I run into these people in the airport or stuff, that's what they say to me. They say, President Griffith, April, we're still doing it. So, so anyway, so no, so it came as a combination of both. I had this idea that I wanted to expand now at a stake, but then my counselors had some ideas of what they, and here's the thing, you're in a BYU campus stake, you're in a young single adult stake. You can do things there, different things there than you could in a, in a family stake. Family stake, you know, you've got... You got lots of different responsibilities in a family state. You got a primary organization. You got young men, young women. You got to worry about that. Campus state, it's a little easier to do stuff outside the box. Now, careful to add, in all of these things, we got buy-in from Elder Groper. You know, no, I went, you know, I didn't want to surprise him with anything. So I'd write these memos and send it to him, and he bought in all the way. I'd, I recognized that what we were doing was a little bit different, right? A little bit different. I didn't want to go rogue on him and he loved it and bought into it. So, yeah. Another point I want to 
emphasize is that I appreciate you really emphasizing the hard work that establishing a culture like this takes or establishing a vision. Because often we may be in a council meeting, a presidency meeting, we have these revelations flown, we come up with these great ideas, sort of this theme comes together, maybe it's April or whatever. And we sort of put it out there, maybe it's the, the focus of a few state conference talks, or, you know, we make some flyers or put it on the bulletin board. And that's, that's sort of it. But these things like to outpace the gravity of past culture, you really have to work hard at it and make it a strong establishment in, in everything you do. Right. And so you just had to keep coming back to it. It sounded like, right. And no, just- we did. We did. At one level, it was very liberating, right? We didn't have to come up with new material all the yeah. time. But at another level, no, it was persistent and repetitive. You know, Moreau and I appeared three times to Joseph, right? There's a lesson that night. There's a lesson. So the repetition. Now, part of it is also we had like 3,000 students in our state, something like that. And they were turning over. This is BYU. They were turning over all the time. So we'd, we figured we'd probably lose half of our stake in a year, be replaced by others. So that that made it a little easier to be repetitive. You know, if you're in a family stake, maybe maybe that's a little bit more challenging. Maybe you can't quite be so repetitive. But we were repetitive and insistent and persistent. And you're right. We just drove this thing. And I don't remember anybody complaining because yeah. it, taste, it tasted so good. Yeah. It tasted so good. Well, then I also appreciate you created that sort of that container for the feedback, right? You, you circled back and you sort of said in a reflective nature, like, all right, how's it going? What are you learning? Are we going too far? And then you got that feedback. And then, you know, after that discussion, they sort of recommitted to this effort that you were doing. So I think I, I have to say after that experience, I actually wasn't looking for much feedback. I mean, we were set. <laughs> we, we felt like, okay, this is it. And so it was kind of like, this is our program. If you're here, this is what we do. BYU United States, this is what we do. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm not willing to take all the, the credit for being as open-minded and looking for a feedback loop as, as, as maybe your kind uh, comment suggested. So. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's fair. I appreciate that. Another component of this approach that comes to mind is, you know, you talk about the Elder Packard quote, Elder Packard quote and the uh, concept of the redemption. Because like you said, in a, in a traditional family ward, there's so many moving parts. We've got the youth activity stuff going, we got ministering to consider. We got, and sometimes it can, you get st- hyper-focused on the no numbers, the key indicators. And so with every fifth Sunday or every state conference or ward conference, you're sort of trying to motivate the masses of like, hey, remember our goals and this is what we're doing. And and it can come away that or people walk away from those meetings feeling sort of bogged down, like, ah, like every time I come to church, I just sort of feel like I'm not doing enough. And to refocus the core message on Jesus Christ, because what matters is what he did, not what we're doing per yeah, se. Yeah. And that's a redemptive message. So people leave these meetings uh, buoyed up, right? Encouraged. And with that, the joy of, of that redemption, which is- Hopefully, yeah, hopefully that's that's what happened. I mean, part of the instruction we'd give to the bishops is we'd say, as you're training your people in how to give talks, okay, tell them that it's not their job to call anyone to repentance. <laughs> no, the purpose, that's the bishop's job, Right. And you, Bishop, ought to be very careful about about doing that because I love the phrase when Paul is writing to Philemon and he's praising Philemon. And this is a loose paraphrase. He said one of the things he liked about, or maybe he was writing, yeah, he's writing to Philemon and he praised him for refreshing the hearts 
of the saints, encouraging mm. them. And so to me, when a bishop is putting on one of these great sacrament meetings, you no, know, people ought to feel more encouraged at the end of the meeting that they did at the beginning. The image that I have is we come here, we're wounded, we're beat up, we're tired, we've had a rough week, right? We come together and we get nourished by partaking of the body and blood of our Lord. And then we encourage one another and give each other good news. One of my favorite quotes from comes from Elder Holland, where he talks about repentance, a paraphrase here. He said, repentance is not a foreboding word. It is following faith, the most encouraging word in the Christian vocabulary. Repentance, he says, is simply the scriptural invitation to growth, progress, renewal, and change. Well, that's what we ought to do when we're together. When we come together, we ought to be encouraging one another. And if we're not, if you want to get somebody to change, at least in my experience, if you want to get somebody to change their life, you let them know that they are loved by Heavenly Father, by the Savior, by us. And you want to let them know that re- regardless of mistakes that they've made, they can improve. Do you know the movie Chariots of Fire? Is that too obscure Oof, for you? I, I don't think I ever saw it, but... Okay, I, all bishops out there, you got to watch the movie Chariots of Fire. Back in the 80s, one best picture. It's about the British Olympic team of 1922 or something like that. It's about focus on a series of... It's a great movie. It's a fabulous, one best picture, fabulous movie. There's a great scene in there where one of the heroes of the movie, it, it, true, a guy named Eric Little was a Scots runner. And he's in this race before the Olympics. He's in it's, it's a 400 meter race, you know, so that's a dash, a sprint around the track. I don't run track, but it's like one of the hardest ever. And so he's, he's, uh, he's in the competition, 10, 15 yards into it, one of his competitors gives him an elbow and little falls to the ground and goes tumbling to the infield. And one of the other uh, figures in the movie is this, this uh, coach named Sam Massabini, and he's there to watch little run. And in the movie, you see the little in slow motion tumbling on the ground and then lying on the ground. And then you see Sam Massabini with his stopwatch in hand. And he, and he looks at him and he says from a distance, he says, get up, lad, get up. And then little gets up, gets back on the track and wins the race, you know, and wins the race. Now, here's the part I like. Sam Massabini, that, that to me, that's, that's a leader. That's a parent. That's a teacher. That's the Lord. He's looking at us and he's saying, Get up, lad. Get up, lassie. Get up. You can do it. To me, that's what it means to stay in the covenant path. It doesn't mean that you don't you never slip and fall or even step outside the covenant path. What it means is every time you do, you get back on it. You get back on the covenant path. And I, to me, that's the encouragement that we should all be offering to one another. You can do this. Yeah, you've made mistakes. Yeah. Yes, you made some serious mistakes. You can do it. Get back on it. Get up. Get back on the path. That's what. I think when we're doing church right, that's what happens when we come together for two hours. We come together, we bear witness of Christ, we partake of the sacrament, we, we reunite with one another over the emblems of, of our Lord's death and suffering, and then we encourage one another. You can do it. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I'm curious, uh, you know, you've shared some great uh, perspectives of aiming for a great sacrament meeting. Any other tips, tricks, or tactics that, uh, that helped you as far as putting together a great sacrament meeting? 
Then I think that I think that's it. Music's really important. It's really yeah. important. And using that intermediate hymn time for a variety of people to perform, I think is good. I think that's the only yeah. other thought. Well, I mean, uh, the sacrament. The sacrament's got to be, right? It's all yeah, about sure. the sacrament. So, and yeah. I think the vision. So I lovingly, I will chide wonderful members of bishoprics of great wards that I've been over the years. You'll frequently hear this phrase. We'll now prepare for the sacrament portion of our meeting. And to myself, I say, no, there is no sacrament portion of our meeting. The whole meeting is sacrament meeting. Now, there is a portion where we bless and pass the emblems of Christ's death and resurrection to members of the congregation. But it's not like when that's over, okay, we're done with the sacrament portion of our meeting. Now let's get on to something. No, no. Everything in the meeting ought to reflect the fact that we've just had this remarkable experience with one another. Everything ought to flow out of that sacrament and what it represents that that we pass the emblems to one another and the symbolism involved in that, you know, uniting us together. And then everything in the next hour ought to be flowing out of the sacrament, the experience that we've just had together. And so that's a kind of a mindset that sometimes you hear reflected like, okay, we're done with the sacrament. Now let's get on to the real business at hand. You know, and, and no, it's, when it's done right, I think everything ought to flow out of that experience we've had. And so therefore, I think we need to be more intentional about it. I think we need to have more instruction, more talks about you know, what we've just done, what that represents. So yeah, I think that's, that's the only other thing I'd offer is it's the best way to connect to the atonement of Christ in our teaching is to use that experience we've just had with one another taking of the sacrament. Oh, that's so. great. That's really helpful. I want to pivot in our remaining times a little bit just to talk about your time as a judge. And I'm curious, maybe like when you get nominated as a federal judge, like does the president literally call you on the phone or how does that work? No, it really, that didn't happen to me. Sometimes oh, okay. that happens. But that's, now if you're, if you're being nominated for the Supreme Court, oh, yeah, sure. you're, you're going to meet face to face with the, the president and, you know, they're going to be examined that way. But no, I mean, the president makes the decision, right? Yeah. And signs a piece of paper. And then in my, and in my instance, I was then called by folks in the White House and say, okay, you've been nominated. And that, that comes after a series of interviews. But my, it, for the court that I was on, so like there are three levels of the federal court system. There's the Supreme Court, there are the trial courts, then in between are the appeals courts, right? And they're important. They're important to any president. But I haven't heard of too many instances where somebody who's being under consideration for the, the appeals court is interviewed by by the president. President signs off on it, uh, knows who the people are, has heard the discussions for and against. But at least for me, my interview was was in the White House with with some of the, the president's key aides, his, yeah. his his White House counsel, and some of his aides. That that's where my interview took place. So no, no, I didn't go into the Oval and meet with President Bush. And uh, I'm pretty certain if you were to run into him on the street right now and say, hey, I know Tom Griffith, that he'd give you kind of a blank stare. And, <laughs> and then if you were to say, you know, DC Circuit, he might give you another blank stare. And, but anyway, eventually he yeah. probably, he might remember. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. And I'm curious, and maybe this is a, a, a crude comparison to make, but I'm just curious, are there anything any parallels there? Like anything you learned as presiding as a judge that helped you prepare or serve as uh, or preside as a, a judge in Israel or vice versa? Yeah. You know, I, had, I hadn't thought about that. 
So I haven't had a church responsibility like that since I was a judge. I was serving as a stake president when President Bush appointed me to the D.C. Circuit. And at that time, the church policy was that you can't do both. So I was released as a stake president. And since that time, my callings have been largely teaching institute to young single adults. So I haven't you know, had the, the judge in Israel responsibility. But here's what I'll say I've learned from being an appeals court judge that, that I hope I use it in my life and generally, and that is to slow down, think things through a little more carefully. Turns out facts are complicated and people are complicated and you need to hear from both sides and different perspectives. I think that's probably the the skill that I was most mm-hmm. lacking in that I, and I'm certain that I've graded it now, but at least I've had some practice at it that, that's good. And that is to, to slow down, to withhold judgment, till you learn as much as you possibly can, and to realize that you're never going to get the complete story from just one person. So I think, I think that, yeah. that, that'd probably be the lesson yeah. that no, that, that's really helpful that I think of, you know, just in these situations that leaders find themselves in, especially when, you know, sins involved and maybe some uh, membership councils need to be considered. And like, you always have the power of just slowing things down. I remember some individuals when I served as bishop would sort of come in and say like, all right, let's get on with a bishop. I've done these horrible things, you know, hold the council and throw the book at me. I deserve it. Sort of like rip the bandaid off and get this yeah, over yeah. with, right? But Put me then, on the rack. Yeah, Put me on the rack right now. Yeah. Oh yeah, great. <laughs> but, but I found that by just slowing it down and taking six months or even more and getting them to a place where they're just ready to enter that experience was, it was just uplifting and healing as it should be, you know, rather than, well, you need to be taken care of and punished because that's not what they're there for. So I just thought of something else, as you you said that, that I I think maybe even more important than that. So when you're an appeals court, a federal appeals court judge, you never make a decision by yourself. You're always sitting with at least two other judges. Sometimes you're sitting with the full court, which in my case would have been 11 judges. That's rare. But every case that I heard involved two other judges looking at it as well. And obviously the point there is that any one judge may not have his, well, they won't have his complete picture as you get three people involved. Well, that's a perfect description of the council system, right? And you know, how long has Elder Ballard been teaching us to do this? I mean, (laughs) it's 30 years, maybe. Um, it goes back to the 80s, um, and I think there's a, a really important principle here. I'm not speaking for the church generally, but I think this is right. I think what Elder Ballard's trying to teach us is this is how revelation comes. No, this is how revelation, it comes in consultation with others. It comes through dis- the expression of disagreement. It comes through discussing stuff carefully, and then it comes when you can reach consensus on that. I mean, I'm at the point now that I'm going to overstate this a little bit, but eh, it's more right than wrong, that I don't trust any decision that isn't the product of discussion and disagreement, right? Whether that decision is made in a family whether or in my bishop's office or my stake president's office, whether it's made at 47 East South Temple. No, I think the process is that we get revelation by talking and reasoning with other people. And if it's just, if it's just us alone, oh, yikes, there's, I think that's a red flag. I think it's yeah. a red flag. So there's a principle that I think applies, I, I'm confident applies in a church governance setting. The council system is really important. 
And once again, here's bad news. That is really hard work to make a council <laughs> run right. It's really hard work. The good news is you get revelation in it. You know, that's how we're supposed to, to do it. So the good news is you'll get it more often than not, you'll get it right. The bad news is it takes a long time to do that and hard work to do that. But I think that's definitely a principle that the Lord has taught us through the revelations to apply in church. Yeah. That really we see mirrored in the judicial system, at least as I, at least as I experienced it. That's really helpful. I love that. Any other point principle concept that we need to make sure we squeeze in here before yeah. we wrap up? Or yeah. You, yeah. Can, I add, can I add one more? And it goes yeah. back to uh, the time at the BYU Ninth Stake, and it was the PR portion of the April acronym, okay. pure religion. This was really quite remarkable as well. We told the wards there that we didn't want an activities committee anymore. No dances, no socials. I mean, BYU students get plenty of that up on campus. Yeah. Uh, we told them what we wanted instead is, and we called it a pure religion committee. Got Elder Groberg's permission to do this, but I told the bishops, okay, you take your strongest man and your strongest woman. There's your Elder Scorn president. There's your Relief Society president. Take your second strongest man and your second strongest woman, and they're the co-chairs of the pure religion committee. And here's what the pure religion committee is going to do. We want every ward to form a partnership with some service provider in Provo, Orem, or Utah County. And that's what our ward activity, that's what our ward activities will be. We'll be organizing to provide that type of service. We would kick off the year by showing a documentary about Mother Teresa. And then we'd say, that's what we want. We're not talking about raking leaves for somebody. That's a great thing to do. No, we're talking about going to the poorest of the poor among us and getting involved with a relationship that's long lasting. Okay. So, so about half of our wards got, that's hard to do. Half of our wards caught that picture. Those that did, it was transformative. Here's the stump speech that the members of the state presidency would give when we'd go out to sacrament meetings, talking about the pure religion committee. We'd go something like this. We'd say, I want to bear you my testimony that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to be personally present in Provo today, he would not attend a single meeting of the BYU Ninth Stake. You wouldn't see him here. Why? Well, you're covered. We've got Bishop Jones and Sister Smith. They've called to watch out for you. You're covered. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ that I know, if he were physically present in Provo today, I'm pretty sure he'd spend some time at the State Mental Hospital. I'm confident he would visit the jail, see what's going on there, probably be at the battered women's shelter. And I know that he'd be welcoming a new immigrant family from Honduras and South Provo. That's where he would be. So it raises the question, if that's where he would be today, what are we doing here? Well, we're actually doing something very important here. <laughs> we're gathering together to partake of the sacrament, renew our covenants with the Savior, and then we're encouraging one another to do that. You know, we can do that in three hours. Actually, I guess we can do that in two hours, right? We can do that in three hours. Once we've done that here, then let's go out there. Let's go out there. And so we had some incredible experiences with about half the wards really caught the vision of that and just had some marvelous experiences. We had an elementary school that was within the boundaries of our state. It's called the Joaquin Elementary School. It doesn't exist anymore. It's 20. But I think, not remember the numbers exactly, right? I think it's something like this. I think like 70% of the students at Joaquin were first generation, not their parents. They were first generation. I think that's right. So largely immigrant, from, largely from Central America. We had hundreds 
of returned missionaries in our state who could speak Spanish. So we linked them together. We had hundreds of kids, students in our state who would become tutors to these kids at Joaquin Elementary School. They formed relationships with them. And that was just one example of the type of service that folks rendered. So out of that, man, if there's any way you can, we can get our wards deeply involved in the lives of our communities in that type of service, the people who were able to do that in our state, they had transformative spiritual experiences. Wow. And, th- and they came away thinking, yeah, this is the church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. We meet on Sunday, take the sacrament, talk about the Savior and what he's done, and then we go out and copy him. This is Matthew 25 stuff, right? I mean, the only, I just taught this lesson institute the other night. The only one, the Lord says, there's only one thing that distinguishes the sheep from the goats at that partial judgment, right? One thing, and it's not service in general. Service in general is good. I'm all for it. It's a particular type of service to a particular type of person. It's service to the least of these who he calls his brethren. It's to the the homeless. It's to those in prison. It's to the hungry. It's to the naked. It's to the immigrant. Yeah, that's where he is. So we we captured a little bit of that and put in a bottle and it was lightning. It was cool. So that's that's the other thing I would add. To the extent that you can do that, especially with your youth. Boy, if you can get your youth, I'm going on too long. No, you're especially, fine. Especially if you can get your youth involved with intellectually disabled youth. No, you get connected with Special Olympics and groups like that. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, there is something really, really powerful in that type of service. And then, then you get our youth growing up thinking what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Yeah, it means I keep the word of wisdom. I'm all for that. It's all that. But it means about something so much more than that. I keep the word of wisdom so that I can be of maximum service to those on the margins of society. That's what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. Anyway, so. That's inspiring. I, I'm so glad you brought that up, made sure we fit that in there. Now I got to ask, we've, uh, the last two letters of the acronym you mentioned earlier kind of didn't uh, work. So what lessons learned there? Like, what can you tell us about the IL? What did well, yeah, so the IL was supposed to represent the Sermon on the Mount and to talk about the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I learned is that you can only do two things, right? <laughs> no, you can't do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, we could have done a lot better with family history. But my wife is a professional genealogist, right? And she's a, a constant reminder to me of her beautiful example of the power of family history, that that's really important. You know, we didn't emphasize that. You can't do yeah. You can't do everything. I, I hope, I hope this is right, that we were inspired for that place and that time to do the things that we did, but you can't do everything. And so we just, we focused on, and so I think we decided two big changes is enough, three, too bad. Yeah. And I, I feel bad that my <laughs> counselor who was inspired to suggest that part is a wonderful human being, Gary Browning, prof- retired professor of Russian literature at BYU, the first patriarch to the church in Russia. He was mission president in Helsinki, Finland, when Russia opened up. He's one of the oh, truly wow. great human beings I've ever met. And that was his emphasis. And every time I see him these days, I say, Gary, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry we didn't get to integrity and love the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if we were yeah. better, we would have done that. But yeah. I, th- I think part of it is, no, there's only so much you can do. And, and Yeah. 
I think that's a lesson most leaders learn in their effort. You know, with good intentions, you would just want to do it all and do it all right. And then you realize the focus of simplification and focusing on those things you can impact. And, you know, that's just part of this, this journey as leaders. So yeah, that's great. Well, anything else? Part of the blessing we have in the restored gospel. We have so many. I know. (laughs) Great things to do. But from my experience, What's the, the Stephen Covey saying? The main thing is to keep the main keep, thing, the main thing. As I understand, the main thing, Joseph taught this, the fundamental principle of our religion is the testament of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. Yeah. Keep the main thing, the main thing, and the rest will hopefully take care of itself. Awesome. Well, Thomas, I really appreciate you uh, giving of your time and sharing. I'm excited to share this with the Leading Saints audience and uh, I'm sure leaders around the world will be blessed by uh, your experience and your words. Uh, The last question I have for you is, as you reflect back on your time as a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Wow, that's a powerful question. And I think the answer is is an obvious one, right? That a leader is a servant. Oh, that's... That's what it means to lead, that you develop this deep sense of love for others and you care deeply about them and how, how you might use whatever authority or power or office or you, how might, you might use that position to bless them. And so, so it really comes down to the washing of the feet, right? I mean, that's the President McKay taught us in his I don't know if it was the conference address when he became president of church, but early 50s where he talks movingly about the Savior washing at the feet and how that is that is the example of leadership. It's not about sitting on a stand and people being nice to you. That's nice. That's nice. But it's all of that stuff is designed to put us in a position where we can wash people's feet. And so I think that's the, that's the great thing about leadership in the church is that it it lets you do that. Elder Rob Danes, when he was president Rob Danes, he was then president of the Menlo Park State. This last April conference, he was called as a General Authority 70. But this is from then President Danes's talk, his maiden talk as president of the Menlo Park State. And I think this is the best summary that I've ever seen of what, what leadership in the church involves and what membership in the church involves. Elder Danes says, God's work is a river of love headed your way. To serve God is to join a work party, people with picks and shovels, trying to help clear this channel for the river of God's love to reach his children at the end of the row. Single, married, gay, straight, black or white or brown or anything, educated or not, moneyed or not, employed or not, Every race, every class, every person, every political party, mentally or physically ill, there is room for you in God's work. Grab a pick and shovel and join the team. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts. And maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about. The friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. 
We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.